Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, before we talk to Bradley Moss, I got to tell you about something super duper important. In case you're not aware, we produce four daily podcasts every week. That means a new show every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, you might be asking yourself, why, oh, why do I not see the Friday show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts? Well, that's because our Friday After Party podcast, with all of its revealing discussions about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and politics, is only available through our Patreon page. So please help support this show by subscribing subscribing to our Friday after party for just $10 per month. We're also posting all kinds of free content on our Patreon page, including our Wednesday interview show with people like Eric Bollert, Randy Rhodes, Malcolm Nance, John Fugelsang, Frank Conniff, and Tom Nichols. Oh, and today, Bradley Moss. That's bobseskashow.com, or just click the all-caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, October 16, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is one of my favorite follows on Twitter, National Security Attorney Bradley Moss. Bradley's law partner, Mark Zaid, is representing the White House whistleblower responsible for exposing Trump's conspiracy to coerce Ukraine and to helping Trump's campaign through an investigation into the Bidens. Today, we'll cover the myriad aspects of representing such a high-profile figure poised to take down an entire presidency, as well as the national security implications of the Trump crisis. Be sure to follow Bradley on Twitter at BradMossESQ. You can also read his work at The Atlantic, Politico, and The Lawfare blog. Okay, here comes the great Bradley Moss. At the outset, I, uh, I want to establish a pronoun standard. Uh, we're going to refer to the whistleblower as he, even though we don't know the person's gender. Does that make sense to you? That's fine. Okay, all right. Without objection, counselor. I've always wanted to say that. All right. Without objection. <laughs> well, before we dig into the Ukraine story and the whistleblower, I just want to say that uh, one of the reasons I, I like to keep up with your Twitter feed, Bradley, is because you don't appear to be ideological. And in fact, um, on the occasion when I veer too far into ideological territory, you haven't hesitated to call me on it. And so I, I sincerely thank you for that because I know I no, it's not a problem. I, I try not to be. Okay, um, so it's uh, your law firm partner, Mark Zaid, along with uh, Andrew Bakai, and they're representing the White House whistleblower. We also know that Bakai and Zaid will also be representing the other whistleblowers who've uh, filed complaints uh, without mentioning methods or sources or anything like that. Are there like security measures in place to protect the whistleblower's identity? So... You know, yeah, without being able to mention any specific details, I'd say that all reasonable and standard, you know, due diligence measures to ensure, you know, whether it's encryption, whether it's, you know, anything you can do to minimize uh, discussions of the person's identity over any kind of open line. Uh, all those measures have been, you know, are you can you can assume are being taken. I mean, is it uh, a heightened sense of security now? I imagine so. <laughs> uh, is there a sense that... Yeah. Uh, 
maybe uh, there'll be some kind of infiltration. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking out loud in terms of who might try to test those security measures. And I'm not <laughs> I, I'm not entirely confident that it's not going to be the White House itself. Donald Trump is desperate to discover the identity of these whistleblowers. And, and it's mainly because, right, it's for purposes of smearing their credibility. I mean, do you think he's do you think he's attempting to surveil uh, your partner and uh, attorney Bakai? No, I, I have to say that I actually have some pretty decent confidence that the greater threat in terms of the safety and security of the whistleblowers as well as ourselves is not going to come from the White House or the president's uh, allies in government so much as it is, is individuals in the public who might get caught up in the fervor of the moment. I see. Uh, in the heightened rhetoric of the president. That's what's, uh, you know, keeps me up at night far more than anything the president says. I mean, certainly the president would absolutely love to know the identity of this person. A lot of his allies on the Hill would love to know the identity of the person. They like to politically smear this person. But I don't fear for the safety of this individual or myself or Mark or Andrew yeah. based off the president's actions. I fear from it from members of the public who would un un unfortunately get caught up and swept up in this moment, just as we've seen over the last three years. And it's not just tied up with, you know, Donald Trump. We certainly saw what happened on, you know, with the Capitol Hill softball shooter who was, who was allegedly, as far as I understood, you know, a supporter of Bernie Sanders. People get swept up in this and they engage in horrible, despicable acts. Yeah. That concerns me far more than what Donald Trump might rant about on Twitter. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump thoroughly embraces the unitary executive theory, believing that he can yes. do whatever he wants. There's nothing restricting him from doing uh, things that he shouldn't be doing, exposing national security secrets and so on. Do you think if he finds out, say, through Mark Meadows or Jim Jordan or, or one of those guys out on the hill do you think if he finds out the identity of the whistleblower that he's going to just turn use that executive authority that he thinks he possesses to expose the name of the whistleblower i think that if he has even an inkling of who this person could be and gets into any kind of mood any kind of a bit of a frustration he maybe sees a cable news segment he doesn't like or a panel discussion on fox he doesn't like i have no reason to doubt that he would blast out the name of the person on Twitter, knowing as he does, because I'm sure he's been advised by White House counsel and DOJ lawyers, that as president, he is immune from all kinds of tort claims that could otherwise be brought. There's, yeah. you know, all federal officials have that kind of immunity. Not to mention that as the president, as you kind of mentioned in this concept of the unitary executive, he has inherent constitutional authority to effectively disseminate information that would be impermissible as a legal matter if it was anyone subordinate to him. And in fact, you know, that's a pretty good point, because uh, I was just thinking about this question uh, maybe five minutes before we started, uh, Bradley. And one of the things that uh, makes my blood boil every time, one of the many Trump things, uh, is when he rattles off like a roll call of former officials preceded by, look it, as if they're all guilty of heinous crimes without naming a single specific one. Should these officials sue Trump for defamation? Or is that even, uh, based on what you just said, being immune from tort? Is that even possible? Yeah, it's not possible. He has complete immunity. Uh, there is an existing statutory setup. It's called the Federal Tort Claims Act, which is a comprehensive scheme to address any and all tort claims, common law tort claims that a person could bring mm. against a member of the federal government, whether of the executive branch or the legislative branch. Um, and it basically outlines how to bring any type of claim. You have to go through an administrative process first and mm. only once once and if you are denied, can you bring a lawsuit? But it largely immunizes all federal officials for most of these claims unless the conduct in which they engaged was completely outside the scope of their employment. And there's been lawsuits about people, you know, engaging in defamation or slander before um, on very, you know, you know, hyperbolic and politically you know, engaged rhetoric, you know, our firm actually, you know, people like to call now we're apparently this leftist law firm of Hillary Clinton lovers. We <laughs> sued John Murtha, you know, late Congressman John Murtha on yeah. behalf of, you know, a client who uh, was, you know, if you think back to, you know, the Bush administration, uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Wooderick who had been tied up in one of the uh, incidents in Iraq where there had been, you know, some un unfortunate deaths and there was a whole claim by several individuals that these guys were war criminals and John Murtha called them that. He called these guys war criminals, they're murderers, yada, yada. He died he not only did that from the floor of the House, but he did it in media interviews. And we brought a lawsuit for slander and defamation. Hmm. And the D.C. Circuit threw it out saying 
no matter you know how grotesque these comments might be, they f- sufficiently fall within the scope of his employment to comment on political matters. And Congressman Murtha was immune. Wow. And so if he and I say if if Trump decides yeah. to leave office when he loses the election or uh, something along those lines, he, his two terms or however many terms he plans to serve or expired, he's no longer immune, right? Correct. Once he leaves office, he's no longer immune for what he says from that point forward. He's still immune for what he said while he was president. But, you know, if he let's say he serves two terms, then he leaves office in January of 2025, January 21st, 2025. He no longer has federal immunity. Right. So he can now be sued for any subsequent slander in which he engages as a private citizen again, even though he's a former president at that point. So, yes, then he would still be liable again. But nothing from while he was president. So he basically has blanket uh, latitude to say whatever he wants about anyone. Correct. It is a temporary but significant blanket of legal immunity that we afford to elected officials and to federal officials, given the nature of the work they do. I mean, and with with elected officials like this, there's always the idea that there is going to be some type of political accountability, depending on what is said. I mean, a lot of this, you know, Donald Trump takes it to the extreme, but all politicians, to be fair, engage in some ridiculous, you know, hyperbolic rhetoric. What Donald Trump has shown is just how far you can take it and it not change anything as a legal matter, which speaks to his uh, language and verbiage style, but doesn't necessarily change anything as a matter of law. And I don't see that rule being changed going forward, even in the aftermath of Donald Trump. I can't imagine the uh, the architects of this immunity uh, foreseeing what Trump is doing with that immunity. It seems like that's something that after Trump leaves office, fingers crossed, that that is a loophole that needs to be closed a little bit. Uh, one of the many things, sort of like the, all the legislation that came down after Watergate. I mean, we need to go through this repair process, this reconstruction process after Trump is gone. I would raise that now that we're having this conversation, Bradley, uh, things that I didn't know. I didn't realize that he had this immunity. Seems to me as if, given Trump's exploitation of that immunity, that it absolutely needs to be closed, don't you think? Or do you think it should uh, be something that, that exists just for the sake of X, Y, Z? Uh, is, what do you think of yeah. that? Sadly, I have to say that I think the immunity should stay, if only because mm. it's about the precedent and not so much the, the man or one day woman who holds those types of positions. I think Donald Trump is unfortunately the representation of the worst of us in that type yeah. of yeah. Uh, language. But to craft or try to you know somehow provide some type of a loophole going forward, some type of exception to the rule would just be opening up any future president, Republican or Democrat, to any number of civil actions in that context that would, basically would burden them with having to respond to litigation and would have, force them to withhold their otherwise, you know, style of speaking, which is what the public and particularly here, the Electoral College, more than the public, had decided was going to be the person who was in that office. So it's it's an unfortunate reality, but it's more of a larger constitutional and institutional principle being upheld there so much as the Donald Trump of the world. Do you believe that that extends to whether or not the president can be indicted? Do you think the uh, your views on his latitude with immunity extend to his ability to operate without being indicted? So that's that's somewhat separate. So because that's not civil, that's obviously criminal. And that raises a separate distinction of the ability to um, ever bring an action. So once Mm. the president has left office, he can be, in theory, indicted at that point for criminal conduct in which he engaged, but which you could not bring the indictment while he was the sitting president. But I mean, Whereas with the tort claims, with tort claims, that didn't change anything. I see. It didn't matter in, in office or not. You're protected because of what? Because you were the president. Once Donald Trump eventually leaves office, whether it's in you know next week, 2021 or 2025, um, if there is criminal conduct that is still within a statute of limitations, he can still then be indicted for that. The reason for that DOJ opinion, and I really dislike it. Um, I understand why they came up with it. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but the reason for that was the idea that if the per, if the president him or herself has actually engaged in what would otherwise qualify as criminal conduct, it is not for a bureaucratic portion of the executive branch to decide to bring an action against him or her. It is for the political branch, namely Congress, yeah. 
to bring political accountability. And so I think that was the overarching premise was just because you can't indict doesn't mean there's not a remedy, but the remedy for such a serious action that would ultimately require removal should be a political one, not one for the, you know, quote unquote, deep state there to be bringing in the form of the DOJ. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm aware of at least two White House whistleblowers right now. I think that's uh, the extent of public knowledge at this point. And there's one from Internal Revenue. Um, Is that the extent? right now or are you expecting any more to emerge what's the word right now internally are you guys anticipating an entire stream of whistleblowers stepping forward seems like we're headed in that direction so those are the only three that I believe have been publicly confirmed, the two I, yeah. two intelligence community whistleblowers and the IRS one. Um, I would expect that there will continue to be more fact witnesses, as we've already seen from the State Department, you know, the last week or so of testimony and depositions. But I expect also from within the White House, you're going to see a lot more fact witnesses coming forward, not necessarily, quote unquote, whistleblowers in the sense that they're not going to go through the formal process at this point. Mm. There's already something ongoing. Um, the original whistleblower had to it initiate the actual complaint to start this process. But I think you're going to see as more and more people are bucking the White House and bucking uh, the president's demands of silence, you're going to see additional clarifying detail. What that detail is and how Congress ultimately views it is neither here nor there as far as I'm concerned. What matters for my purposes is that the complete and factual clarity and truth comes out, whatever it was. If Congress decides it's not worth impeaching, that's Congress' prerogative, and it's up to the American people as voters to decide if this matters to them in the context of the president's re-election, and that's the voters' ultimate choice to make. I see. So do uh, attorneys Zaid and Bakai, is there some sort of system set up uh, in your firm for whistleblowers to make contact, some sort of secure portal, something along those lines. I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily, again, I, I don't want to skirt into areas of sources and methods here, but I, I'm curious in terms of how potential whistleblowers, whistleblowers that are prepared to come forward, can make contact uh, with someone like your law partner. Sure. So, the, I mean, the most obvious one, I mean, we have an online portal in which you can just reach out to us um, oh, good, through, the, good. through our website uh, to you know seek assistance. And we get all kinds of people reach out to us on a number of matters, most of them not having to do with whistleblowers because we represent which, uh, sorry, we represent officials across the intelligence community, government officials, defense contractors, political appointees on a number of matters, security clearances, personnel actions distinct from whistleblowing. But we do have that as the initial method of communication. But we all make public also the fact that we have access and we have accounts on, you know, Proton Mail and Signal, both which are, you know, end to end encrypted uh, p- uh, platforms for email and for text messaging uh, to get information to us where there is an issue of, you know, concern about. Uh, confidentiality and exposing your identity so we always make that available and we you know we have a lot of communications particularly on signal from individuals uh, who want to you know have to have a discussion about something of concern how they would approach something but don't want to do it over the open net are there tapes of these calls and will we ever ever hear those recordings Oh, of the calls with the president yeah the president the, the one that basically the the centerpiece of the whistleblower complaint so that's an interesting question. And as far as I understand, no, huh. there is not. I do not believe they have been recording those phone calls for a long time. Um, I think the method that they have been using has been somewhat what you've already seen, but it's only an, it's only a fragmented portion. It's that there were always word for word transcriptions. Yeah. And that there were then, you know, what you saw was portions of it kind of summarize the relevant issues to kind of, you know, clear out some of the uhs and I, you know, and, you know, just, you know, normal way people end up talking and to clarify it first. So the people who are given access to those transcripts who are, you know, whether it's cabinet level officials or more mid-level management, people who have to implement the president's directives. And I have an understanding of what um, what the president has talked to people about, talked to foreign leaders about, what promises were made, those people can get the this, the consolidated and concise explanation of what's been discussed so they understand things. That's generally been how they have documented yeah. for both immediate purposes of government policy but also for historical purposes because all this stuff is subject to what's called the Presidential Records Act, mm-hmm. um, which you know historical you know archival statute that requires the maintaining of these records. So that's how they have chosen to document it. There may be some manner of an audio system, but as far as I'm aware, 
if there is one, no one's disclosed it. You saw that story in the AP right over the weekend where they reported, among many other things, that basically whenever the president has notes uh, handed to him before a call, he they're basically in the form of note cards. And then once he's yeah. done with the call, he tears up the note cards and throws them into a burn bag and that other staffers have to run in, grab the notes out of the burn bag and tape them back together with scotch tape. Uh, yeah. That, just, and that, that, that's a continuation. Yeah. That's a continuation of a story that we first started hearing about, I think in late 2017, early 2018. Yeah. And this was unfortunately a president because he had no experience, no exposure to government documentation and records keeping rules, had no understanding of what's actually expected and no, uh, real appreciation for the idea of something like the Presidential Records Act. This is a guy, he's in his 70s. He has been in his own business his entire life. He had a way of doing things. This was his pattern of practice of how he handled things. And when he came into government, I don't know if he didn't care to listen or if it just didn't really you know, see, you know, sink yeah. in with him, but that you are now a government of person and you there are archival, you know, uh, mandates imposed upon you, not as an individual so much as the institution of the office of the presidency that have to be maintained going forward as a matter of law. And so, yeah, unfortunately, those staffers and, you know, hats off to them for having to do that as a thankless task, but they had to go in there and they had to basically stitch everything back together so that <laughs> one amazing. day in 20-something years, you know, people can see what the notes were for historical purposes. That's why we see wow. stuff like what Kennedy had for memoranda and what Johnson had. We have that because they maintained the records and we had to formalize it after Nixon into law because there was a debate over the extent to which these were personal records of the president or government records. Does it make sense as a law firm, if you're going up against Donald Trump, does it make sense to consult with mob attorneys? I mean, people who have experience either going up against the mafia or actually uh, representing the mafia? Because it seems to me as if that's the way Donald Trump operates. He operates maybe not necessarily specifically the Italian mob or something like that, but he operates like a gangster, constantly hiding his tracks, uh, whether it's with burn bags or lying or any point in between. Is that something that's informative uh, as, a, as a lawyer going up against Donald Trump? I don't think I would ever consult with a mob lawyer for various reasons, <laughs> for no other reason that I don't, I don't really need to. I don't need to show up at FBI surveillance any more than I already possibly do. Right, right. But yeah. that, I mean, that being said, the one thing here, and I don't necessarily view this as, you know, Mark and Andrew going up against the president so much as Mark and Andrew representing a client who happened to blow the whistle on the president, is that no matter how much the president may act a certain way, no matter how much he might talk a certain way, he is still constrained, and we've seen this, on by the actions of the government lawyers who ultimately have to defend him and how the DOJ will handle things. So... It doesn't matter what he used to be able to pull off with like a Michael Cohen to buy people off. Yeah. That authority, that ability doesn't exist now. He's in a different realm. So a lot of the tricks he may have been used to, uh, things he may have been used to do, you'd be able to pull off with catch and kill for stories. He doesn't have that ability. I think you've seen some of the frustration coming from him and how all these leaks come out and all these stories from the Post and the Times and CNN and Fox have come out that have painted him in a – unflattering light he doesn't have the ability to shut down those stories in the mm. way he once was able to and you know there's something i've been dying to talk with you about bradley uh for many many months now um these quid pro quo calls seem as though they'd link up to this ongoing investigation of whether trump is compromised the now infamous counterintelligence investigation that is still shrouded in mystery and and, and for some respects rightfully so clearly the existence of these conspiracies to cut all these deals with foreign governments compromise is the president and everyone who's involved on down to guys like Gordon Sondland and so on. First, uh, do you agree he's compromised himself? And second, why isn't the fact that the president is obviously compromised and therefore a severe national security risk getting more play? I know there's a fire hose of bullshit, as uh, Ed Bott calls it. Um, and so it's difficult to keep track of all these things as they whiz on past our heads. But shouldn't this, I mean, the fact that Donald Trump is now and very clearly severely compromised by at least several governments. Is, is that a bigger deal than is being made of in the press? 
So, you know, I mean, it's difficult. And part of this is sort of, you know, a problem of Trump's own making. I mean, I was always skeptical, you know, going all the way back to 2016, I was always skeptical of a lot of what was coming out of, you know, the rumors from Christopher Steele and the dossier, you know, the stuff with the prostitutes and the hotel room and all that stuff. A lot of it just seemed too far-fetched, even for Donald Trump. Yeah. It just seemed a little too out there. Uh, but there was, a, there was a financial concern about exposure, which wasn't necessarily that he owed money directly to a bunch of oligarchs where, you know, we've got this, you know, this IOU from you, Donald, and you will do what we say or else we'll break your kneecaps. I never thought it was going to be something that formal. My always concern, and I think we've somewhat seen this, is that subconsciously he views areas of the world and leaders who control those areas as people to which he wants to maintain a good personal relationship. He mm. is very much, he's all about the personal interaction, the yep. personal relationship. This is what Donald Trump excels at, uh, that he wanted to maintain these good personal relationships to protect, you know, at least in the abstract, his own first, uh, financial empire and the Trump organization and its assets around the world. And he doesn't necessarily realize sometimes that how he does it, how he does business, how he interacts with foreign leaders unnecessarily undermines and jeopardizes the interests of the United States as a foreign policy matter. It may not have been – it may not be necessarily as nefarious as some people have suggested. And I've tried to be very skeptical of that just as a you know, issue of good faith. It's still the president. I'm trying to assume he's not deliberately mm -hmm. doing this. But, but viewing it as the – Donald Trump, by being the way he is and acting as how Donald Trump does, is undermining himself and unnecessarily exposing himself to foreign coercion because of how he views himself as both Donald Trump businessman and Donald Trump president. And he's keeping in the back of his mind that he's got a Trump Tower in Turkey and he's got mm. int financial interests he wants to explore in Russia and he knows things are going over in this area of the world. And so he's always got that in the back of his mind. So, you know, you think back to what happened with this issue with Ukraine, how much of this was uh, just Donald Trump being the way he is and having friends who are coming to him saying, hey, this is part of the corruption here. This could be politically advantageous. And we've got these great deals we can possibly do in Ukraine one day. And he's not necessarily saying, OK, well, I'll do this too in order to get a great deal in you know, Kiev. Mm -hmm. But he's thinking of that in the back of his mind in a way that, a, that any other president, whether it was George Bush or Barack Obama or – uh, Ronald Reagan would never even contemplate it because they didn't have those other interests. They had, you know, maybe they had a farm back home, you know, or they had the ranch in California or in Texas, something like that. But they didn't have to worry about, well, I've got a, you know, three possible $3 billion investment deal going on in Turkey. I got to, you know, back of my head, got to make sure that that's protected going forward once I'm no longer present. So I think that's where he's, these are unforced errors on his part that's exposed him and kind of allowed him to jeopardize possibly un unknowingly and unwittingly, the interest of national security because he's not strictly viewing himself as a president. He's viewing himself as multiple different players. I mean, is is he aware that he's uh, violating the law, that he's damaging foreign policy, or is he just like Chance the Gardener? He's just completely clueless about what he's doing. He doesn't know, and so therefore he's stumbling onto all of these rakes laid out on the lawn. Like Every time he steps on a rake, the, the handle for the rake comes up and smacks him in the face. Where did that come from? I had no idea. Or does he know... And that he's just circumventing all of these things because he thinks he can. I think it's partially that he knows he can because it's, yeah. you know, there was some truth to that old line from Nixon when the president does it, it's not illegal. Mm -hmm. There's actually some, there's some legal truth to it. There's not a political truth to it because there are things like impeachment and the 25th Amendment. But there is some legal truth that there's there's a limit on what to what extent you can hold a president legally accountable. But a part of it, I think, is just he views it as this is how I do business. This is how I do things. I am unconventional. I was brought in to shake things up. And if that means I step on a bunch of toes, if that means I glad hand with a bunch of, you know, a genocidal maniac in North Korea, yeah. I don't care because I will be vindicated later or whatever. And this is my unconventional style. And this is what people wanted. And so he's viewing it as this is how I do things. If you try to cabin me in and make me do it a certain way that the pet that my predecessors did, I won't be effective. And, you know, to his credit, and I use that word, you know, loosely, yeah. there were at least initially some indications that some of this may have, you know, 
worked. At least uh, initially, it looked, and there were a lot of Obama people who were originally surprised that maybe he could have pulled off something with Kim Jong Un. That he had the ability through that personal connection. Now, ultimately, unfortunately, our worst worst fears were validated. Kim Jong Un had no intention of val, you know, of going along with any of the you know proposals and promises and. Trump looks foolish in that regard, but for a moment, it looked like he might be able to pull it off and maybe this unconventional style would work. So for him, I'm sure he's thinking, look, I'm not going to be a George Bush. I'm not going to be a Barack Obama. I don't work that way. I will do it my way. I have an immense amount of discretion in terms of how I conduct foreign policy. So long as I'm not, there's no political risk in terms of being impeached, this is the way I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be me. Okay, we're going to return to our conversation with Bradley Moss here in just a second. But first, I have a question. Do you feel younger than you appear? Well, under eye bags, crow's feet, wrinkles, they often add years to our appearance. And that sting, I hate that sting when someone thinks you're 10 years older than you really are. It's crushing to the ego and the confidence level plummets. But let's talk about a quick and easy fix. There's a solution to all of this, and it's called Plexiderm. It's a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates wrinkles, crow's feet, fine lines, and under eye bags in just a matter of minutes. It's exactly what you need to win the battle against Father Time and restore your confidence without painful and expensive plastic surgery. And if you don't believe it, I didn't either until I tried it. I took the test and I was amazed by the results. Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody's going to know that you're using it, unless, of course, you tell them. And the effects will last for hours Bye-bye, eye bags. Go to triplexiderm.com. Use my code SEXYLIBERAL for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code SEXYLIBERAL. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Go to triplexiderm.com today and use my code SEXYLIBERAL at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code SEXYLIBERAL. The Bob Seska Show. Are we ever going to see the details of the counterintelligence investigation? Is that ever going to come to light? I mean, or should we? Should we even see it? I, I think that tends to be a question that's raised in this context, too. That, yeah, it's a serious matter, and it's being probed right now uh, by the FBI, uh, but at the same time, it may involve details that are highly guarded national security secrets. I mean, where are we right now with this as far as uh, what you know uh, regarding this counterintelligence thing? So I'll say that absent some kind of smoking gun, absent some type of finding in the counterintelligence investigation, that there is some very formalized exposure in the sense that Trump literally owes, you know, $30 million to Russian oligarch A and is being blackmailed. That, you know, absent something, you know, very concrete and black and white like that, there's a lot of this counterintel investigation that I expect will remain classified for many years to come. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe the, maybe the next president will decide to declassify everything and pull a Donald Trump kind of you know move. I don't expect that. I think that's you know one a one time kind of situation. But assuming that you know that doesn't happen, I think it's going to be a long time till we get the full details, and it may ultimately become something like what we dealt with uh, with the Kennedy assassination in the context that there would be generations that go on fighting for the full details just because. The, the context, the granular information about how this has been conducted, what kind of sources had to be utilized to gather this intel and what it reflects and what it shows about how deeply, you know, we've penetrated maybe the KGB or not the KGB, sorry, the FSB um, or the Kremlin itself in, in terms of our ability to gain you know, information. That's something you don't want to expose, not only for a, an immediate source, you know, you know, protection issue, mm-hmm. but also disrupting foreign relations and so it might be that it's a long time and i'm talking decades till we fully know the full story and that's just unfortunately the reality of having to rely on civil servants to an extent to constrain the president's worst impulses and congress to do its job to conduct oversight and lastly the american people to make their best judgment on whether or not this behavior is something we're willing to accept. Well, well. Similarly, along those same lines, uh, do you believe congressional investigators are going to be able to get their hands on um, the content of this TSSCI server, uh, whatever it happens to be inside the White House, where they're dumping all of these uh, call transcripts and so on? Is that something that is uh, gettable, or is that something that the White House will be able to maintain secrecy over? So I have a feeling there will be at some point, and I think that's further down the road in any impeachment process, 
Um, and it depends on what comes out from these various depositions and whether or not people from within the White House, particularly the White House Counsel's Office and uh, the NSC, uh, to what extent they t- are able to testify. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on whether or not there needs to be an accommodation made so that the intelligence committees who have secure facilities set up, who have staffers, who have the requisite clearances, who have the ability to have classified information in their offices, um, need to have a better, more detailed understanding of what is logged into the system. So it wouldn't require you know, physically removing a server you know, from a server rack or anything like that. Uh, but as getting detailed readouts of what's there, when it was logged in, because all this stuff is documented. Yeah. Um, when each transcript was put in, who put it in, who authorized it, and what the contents of the transcripts are. And from there, providing, you know, getting additional clarifying details from the relevant players to understand why it was put on there. Whether this was part of a larger practice, which is possible, to be fair, mm-hmm. whether it was a larger practice of placing all presidential phone calls with foreign leaders on this server, or if they were only doing it for a select group that would be politically damaging and embarrassing or possibly reflecting misconduct, which would be a far larger problem for the president and his staff and could uh, support ultimate articles of impeachment in terms of abuse of power. I mean, do we know whether previous administrations have done the same thing or is that just a deep, dark secret that we we may never know, uh, at least uh, in the process of investigating this particular action? To the best of my understanding, this has not been something that past administrations have done unless the call for whatever reason, and it would probably be only with a select group of leaders, actually implicated that type of information. You know, to give, you know, the audience just a, you know, very brief, very brief primer. TSSCI is top secret information, which is the highest level of classification. And SCI stands for sensitive compartmented information, which is a uh, segment of it. It's, you know, additional access caveat for uh, individuals. So, you know, normally you get a security clearance and then for SCI, it's basically giving you access to a compartmented piece of information. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is usually some of the most sensitive stuff we're talking, you know, human intelligence, signals intelligence, you know, the raw data, you know, some of the most uh, precious uh, secrets that the nation has. Generally speaking, a president will not be discussing information of that sensitivity on a call with a foreign leader mm-hmm. i could think of certain exceptions if it's you know we're talking about the you know the prime minister of the uk or something like that. maybe we're you know certain circumstances we're discussing or with israel you know a very close ally we're discussing a particular asset something like that that might implicate a particular program that's possible but generally speaking those calls are just going to be classified at the secret level because it's going to be standard diplomatic and foreign relations talk sure sure and and along those same lines uh you know i believe we began following each other on twitter during the Snowden summer, the summer of Snowden, mm-hmm. as I like to call it. It's always been my contention that uh, Snowden is definitely not a whistleblower, that uh, that he's a leaker, uh, if you want to define it in the, those terms, in those binary terms. Maybe, <coughs> maybe you can help me crystallize for my audience the difference between a whistleblower and a leaker and, mm-hmm. sure. and, and why one is protected, but one is not necessarily protected. Sure. So there's the legal definition of a whistleblower and then there's the dictionary definition of a whistleblower the dictionary definition is basically anybody who raises concerns of public interest about potential government misconduct so from a dictionary standpoint i always understood why you know the glenn greenwald the jesslyn raddix of the world called Mm. snowden a whistleblower okay from a dictionary definition yeah you could say that but from a legal definition and this is getting to where you were referencing he was absolutely not a whistleblower and he was absolutely only a criminal leaker, mm. not a traitor. I hated people who said, oh, he's a traitor. He should be hung. No, no. He's, he's, he's a criminal leaker. He mm. should go to prison for several years, but he's not a traitor. Um, he did not go through any authorized channels to bring his concerns to light. He did not do what the intelligence community whistleblower here did, which was go through the existing statutory process to raise a concern about flagrant abuses of the law go through the inspector general of the intelligence community in order to bring it to the intelligence committee committees themselves. What is Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning did none of that. They simply took information. They took it off servers. You know, they stored it on whether it was Snowden with the Lady Gaga, sorry, Manning with the Lady Gaga CD, or if it was Snowden with whatever device he had, you know, that he was transporting the thousands of um, thousands of documents, allegedly it was. Yeah. Um, and he was handing it to journalists, journalists who may have had good intentions in the context of Snowden. You know, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald's had his 
you know, uh, days of, you know, speaking truth to power, if you want to say, to various administrations, Republican or Democrat, and maybe some of these stories deserve to have been raised to the attention of Congress. I certainly was not thrilled with some of what I learned from the Snowden leaks in Mm -hmm. terms of how the NSA had played games with terminology. But those are things that Snowden could have secured qualified counsel and gone through the process to bring to Congress's attention, where Snowden and Manning and people like that differ from other whistleblowers, such as the people that Mark and Andrew are representing, is that Snowden was seeking a particular end. He yeah. was not consent with just raising the concern. He demanded that his particular objective be met as part of it. Mm-hmm. An actual whistleblower as a matter of law is not concerned with what comes of it. They raise their concern. They go through the process. Their confidentiality is maintained. And then they go back to work. Yeah. And if the political powers that be decide the concern is not valid or doesn't require any change, so be it. That's why people are elected to Congress. That's why we put them in Congress to make those decisions for us. That's why we elect a president to make those decisions for us. It's not up to the 29-year-old system administrator <laughs> at Booz Allen in Hawaii to yeah. decide what policy should be. If he wants to make that policy, he should run for Congress. That's right. That's the distinction between Edward Snowden and the IC whistleblowers. What's your take on the uh, prosecution of Julian Assange uh, under the auspices of the uh, Espionage Act? Should that be the weapon that's used against him? Or what, what's your uh, what's your view on that, uh, how that prosecution is going yeah. down? So it, it pained me to say it when this happened. So when the first indictment came out for Julian Assange, it was just under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Mm. I said, I'm fine with this. He was help. He was trying to help hack the system and you know break the password i said no nope, that's beyond what journalists are trained to do yeah specifically trained not to do that for a source you can't you know break passwords you can't hack passwords get you know stuff for a source like that uh uh-uh, that you don't cross that line and so at first i said i was fine with the indictment when they had the superseding indictment which had all the espionage act charges i had to come out publicly and it really pained me to do it but i had to come out and say i oppose this and i will stand with julian assange who i utterly despise not because I care about him, because I don't, mm. but because I don't want this print, this precedent being set going forward. Because if they can indict and prosecute and convict Julian Assange for the mere publication of leaked documents in and of itself, they can go after every other media outlet anytime. That means the New yeah. York Times. That means Fox News. That means CNN. That means ABC News. Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, whatever the bent of the media outlet if Assange goes down for violating the Espionage Act for mere publication, that can apply to every media outlet. And it would be up to the discretion of the DOJ which media outlets they want to punish and which ones they don't. And I don't want any DOJ, whether under Republican or a Democratic administration, to have that type of power. And, you know, it's interesting uh, that you've defined it that way, too. And I absolutely agree with you. And it, partly it's because I feel as if the debate surrounding Julian Assange is one of journalist versus not journalist. I think that is not the, the proper binary choice in that case. I think it's a matter of publish versus not publish. Because obviously there are things that distinguish, say, Michael Schmidt from New York Times from Julian Assange from WikiLeaks. But at the same time, it's really... And, and the way you crystallize it right there is, is, is exactly right. It's a matter of publishing, not necessarily how it's published. Am I, am I right on that? Am I on the right Correct. track along those lines? Okay. Yeah. I don't want the Justice Department getting to decide what is a journalist for yeah. purposes of, of criminal law. That's not something I want DOJ lawyers deciding. It's beyond what I view uh, what should be a matter of their authority to mm. decide. That's something for the public. If the public wants to decide not to view with any credibility something from coming from the Times or something coming from a blogger or something coming from Fox, that's for the American public. But for purposes of criminal law, I don't want that being something that the government yeah. gets to decide. God, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, speaking of hacking, I'm sure you've heard about uh, Trump's latest mention of the DNC server and how he'd like to see it. Yep. In or- he wants to see it as if, you know, he would be able to know what it is. Uh, he, would, he, have, he would have no idea. But he wants to see it anyway, and, and mainly in order to prove that the uh, Russian GRU never actually hacked it. Um, how damaging to U.S. national security is talk like this, where Trump is defying even his own appointees inside the intelligence community, including FBI Director Chris Ray and so on, in support of a conspiracy theory to exonerate 
the Kremlin. How uh, remarkably damaging is that, Bradley? Yeah, it it paints in a very unflattering light the institutions of the U.S. government, and it shows mm. just how dismissed and disregarded the president has to be because he keeps engaged in these conspiracy theories. It's not, yeah. and it's not just the intelligence community. It's not just Robert Mueller, the courts, even in the Roger Stone case, because that was part of Roger Stone's defense. He wanted to be able to raise issues about whether or not the Russians had actually hacked the DNC. The courts have even blocked this thing saying, no, this has been settled. We're not going back and revisiting this discussion, but the president keeps wading into it because he thinks that there's some political advantage he can find from muddying the waters, from making things murky, raising questions so someone can go and do a cable news segment and saying questions about whether or not this is was actually the truth. Mm. Now, it's been settled that it happened. It's been settled that the Russians were the ones who hacked it. I don't I never was convinced that there was going to be proof that Donald Trump or his allies had deliberately coordinated with the Russians to do so. I always assumed they were unwitting tools of the whole situation and allowed themselves to just become the beneficiaries of this, you know, action, which is totally within Donald Trump's MO. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, he's bringing it up and he's making, he's discrediting himself and the integrity of the institution of the office of which he holds by continuing to push these theories. And it weakens him in the views of the world when he's negotiating with his other leaders because they lack respect for him which means lack of respect ultimately for the U.S. government and the American, you know, in the United States of America itself sure. because of how he wades into these ridiculous theories. Do you think the extent of collusion slash conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, that, uh, you know, may have occurred in 2016, 2015, maybe even beyond that, um, was was basically the same as what we're observing right now with Ukraine, that it was uh, the quid pro quo deals. Maybe Trump wasn't involved. The Trump campaign wasn't involved with hacking and spreading the uh, false memes on Facebook and so on. But there was some kind of quid pro quo deal. Seems to me as if the Ukraine story exposes or sheds more light on what may have happened with Russia. Does that make sense to you? The way I view this, I think the Ukraine situation is actually more substantial in terms of any potential quid pro quo or quote unquote collusion than anything that ever happened with Trump and Russia. Whereas so with with the Russian angle, I never you know was convinced from what it kept coming out that they had managed to actually coordinate. They were uh, between the campaign, whether it was WikiLeaks or the Russian government in terms of the hacking or the dissemination of the info. They were, and I think the Mueller report kind of spelled this out very clearly. Yeah. They were essentially two ships passing in the night. The Trump campaign certainly tried and certainly conspired to collude. I mean, that the first volume one, the hundred something pages mm. of volume one laid out clearly how they were trying to coordinate, but they were too incompetent and too um, haphazard how they did it and never were actually successful. But they certainly tried. But that there was never they never met in, in terms of any kind of agreement. They never met for per, for legal purposes into what could actually be construed as a conspiracy, uh, whereas with the Ukraine side and possibly being, you know, Boistered by what he had just seen, how he just defeated Robert Mueller, Trump got bold and pulled what he did in July and August with this issue with Ukraine and was playing games in a much more direct way, thinking he had all this leverage now and was having, you know, Rudy plays a little shadow diplomacy and coordinating, you know, favor, you know, I'll give you this White House meeting and I'll give you this aid if you conduct these investigations. I'm going to shroud it with language through my lawyer so it doesn't directly implicate me and I have plausible deniability. And that's, you know, Trump's M.O. Yeah. But ultimately, that's a far stronger case as far as I'm concerned for a conspiracy to collude or conspiracy to engage in criminal behavior by way of campaign finance violations, by way of bribery than anything that was ever there on the collusion front with the Russia investigation. My view always was if they were ever going to move to impeach Donald Trump tied to the Russia investigation, it would have been strictly um, on volume two, the obstruction angle, and it would have been issues such as suborning perjury in terms of trying to get Dominican to lie. And it would have been things like uh, trying to create false records to verify his view of how he had, you know, tried to get, uh, Robert Mueller fired and then cover it up, which would have been a petty bunch of procedural violations. But that's <laughs> yeah. the same thing we impeached Bill Clinton over. We didn't right. impeach Bill Clinton over what he well, what he did with Monica. We impeached him over 
how he lied about it and tried to cover it up. Mm-hmm. It was always the co- it's the same thing with Nixon. It was all about the cover up, not the crime. And so that certainly could have been a viable way to go after Donald Trump. The Ukraine saga just made it worse because now it was clear and upfront and in the open. Were you satisfied with the results in the Mueller report? I mean, were you satisfied that as uh, as a document um, being a national security uh, attorney? I mean, did that? Uh, yes. Were you, were you left wanting more or was that pretty much what you would expect no, I mean, I, I was very satisfied with it was very comprehensive, laid out everything. I thought it gave very fair uh, consideration to a lot of the defenses that the Trump team had put forward on how they did things. And I think, you know, contrary to a lot of the smears that had gone on for about two years from a lot of people in conservative media about how how sorry, how Mueller was going to twist testimony or he was going to make people you know, support, you know, support perjury, make people give false witness. He did none of that. The facts were exactly what they were. They, you know, he didn't try to construe, you know, finagle some kind of legal theory to make a criminal case on volume one. He laid out very detailed how it, you know, what the standards were and how they had struggled to make a criminal charge fix, you know, stick against someone like Donald Trump Jr., which I may have disagreed with from a legal matter, but I certainly understood their reasoning. It certainly wasn't a frivolous, you know, argument of how this would have been a tough charge to bring against Donald Trump Jr. And, you know, and with, uh, volume two, you know, and I had said this from the beginning when Robert Mueller came on board and people were asking, will he try to indict the president? I said, Robert Mueller's an institutionalist. Robert Mueller's not going to go against the principles of DOJ's policy. He's not going to go against, he's not going to try to circumvent it and become the savior of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, volume two laid it out basically saying, Congress, this is your job. Yeah. Here are the facts. Here's how we view this as possibly being, you know, qualifying as a matter of law as obstruction under these various different statutory provisions. But it's not for me, the unelected bureaucrat, to tell you whether or not this is a quote unquote crime. That's your job as the political branch. I see. Yeah. One last question for you, Bradley, before we wrap up here. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you saw the president with the Italian president here in the Oval Office this morning, but he said today that his decisions in Syria are, quote unquote, strategically brilliant. He also said that the Kurds are, quote, more of a terrorist threat than ISIS. Um, as again, as a national security attorney, when you hear crap like this, what's the first thing that pops into your head? This is where we are, and it is the movie Idiocracy in real life. <laughs> there you go. I mean, Every- this is seriously Idiocracy in real life. All I need now is the guy coming out, you know, firing the machine gun with the Amex, you know. <laughs> You know, tags in the back, you know, in the middle of the State of the Union. That's where we are with this. Commentary. Oh, man. Don't forget, Brando's got electrolytes. All right, my friend. We'll exactly. See. It's so great talking to you today. We'll see you on Twitter. Absolutely. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. Today's show has been brought to you in part by the Election Ride Home podcast. I got to tell you about this great podcast called the Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. One of those people last night. And the Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone is going to end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? What do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser a thousand times a day like I do. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast thank you hey this is jody hamilton host of the podcast from the bunker if you enjoyed this episode you'll love my show where every week sean barton david Shockett, and i discuss politics sports pop culture that show on hbo that i don't watch find it at sexyliberal.com and on itunes stitcher TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts